bring us from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. There are also some blue Bibles scattered in some of the baskets in front of you. And you are welcome to not only use those, but take them if you don't own a Bible. And as you can see, we are resuming our series in the Sermon on the Mount that we kind of put on pause for Advent, but we are back this morning. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or one hair black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God of grace, as we were talking about earlier, this is a diverse group of people with a lot on our minds. Some of us are celebrating, some of us are, are kind of mourning and maybe bummed out, but a lot of us just have all sorts of things flowing through our minds and hearts as we resume so many things that maybe we're put on pause. Some of us are elated, we're excited about the challenges coming ahead in the new year, some of us are not. And so we praise you that uh, you are, as we said, the kind of God that can serve all of us and can bless all of us as we hear your word. And so we plead with you that your Holy Spirit might work so powerfully among us that we might not just hear these words, but every one of us would experience transformation. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a season for resolutions and goals and new habits and so forth. And I hope that our new goals in this new year have more to do with transformation and growth than pursuing perfection guided exclusively by personal grit. And that might seem rather uncontroversial, given our colloquial tendency to throw around phrases like nobody's perfect. We kind of recognize that nobody can be perfect, but then again, a lot of our resolutions around this time of year do look like behavioral leaps precisely in the direction of perfection guided by this untethered personal resolve. You know, maybe we've not gone on a proper walk since November, but all of a sudden we are going to be at the gym every morning at 5 a.m. Or maybe something like, you know, this year I'm just, I'm going to stop gossiping completely, just Cut it off at the source. No more. This point on, I'm going to speak charitably about other people. All of this is wonderful. This is lovely. But the wiser and the more biblical course of action is actually to think about how we might become the kind of people who exercise or stop gossiping and so on and so forth. And as we become these kinds of people, we end up pursuing incremental behavioral change in keeping with that inward change, keeping in mind that the behavioral change then swings back around and reinforces the inward change, 
because our practices are formative. And then along the way, we're sure to celebrate in community the wins while learning from the losses without becoming unduly caught up with them. My son is currently trying to become the kind of person who puts his shoes on the correct feet, and he's doing really well. I mean, we're probably at 70% at this point, and we've all been there, so put your hand down if you think you you did this perfectly when you're going up. A few days ago, uh, he did have a, a setback concerning his shoes in the afternoon, but then he looked at me and said, remember this morning, Dad, when I nailed it? And that is exactly right, right? We're pursuing incremental transformation. We're celebrating the wins. Another way of saying this is that God would have us experience heart change that transforms the way that we live, which is in keeping with our church focus this academic year on transformation, and it makes our return to the Sermon on the Mount series really timely. Jesus' purpose in giving this sermon contained here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it's not to spell out increasingly intense rules that exceed the stipulations of the Torah. It's not about moralism simply for the sake of becoming better Christians or, you know, getting off to a good start in 2023. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's unpacking the heart of the law originally given by God to Moses for the benefit of the Israelites, which had to do with showing the Israelites what it looks like to love God with their heart, soul, and strength, and what it looks like to love their neighbor. The point wasn't so much to avoid false gods. The point was to exclusively love God with your whole heart. The point wasn't so much to avoid adultery or divorce. It was to love your spouse sacrificially. The point wasn't so much to keep the pits you dug covered so your neighbor's ox didn't fall in. It was about maintaining a disposition toward your neighbors in which you prioritize their interests above your interests, even if it's costly to you financially and requires you to spend time on. And the point beyond that was for the Israelites to walk with God and worshipfully enjoy him, thus the regulations in the law concerning right worship, that he might change their hearts, forming them into the kind of people that live faithfully in keeping with the heart of the law and then live well in the land that God was giving them. But as we all know, it is so easy to lose track of the heart of things, isn't it? Right? It is, it is so easy, for example, to simply start pursuing behavioral conformity while losing sight of the purpose of, of the why. You know, to just say, well, I'm a Christian and Christians do Christian things. So Jesus is, and this is so important, Jesus' earthly ministry focused a whole lot on helping his followers recover the heart of God's standards, the why, and on showing them that their own heart change is the only true catalyst for becoming the kinds of people that live faithfully 
according to God's standards. If you're wondering about the purpose of Jesus and his earthly ministry, that has a lot to do with it. I do want you to know that posturing ourselves for that kind of heart change is remarkably costly. It involves humble repentance of our self-oriented waywardness, and then as Jesus puts it later in Matthew chapter 16, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. It costs us the world, but then you get Jesus, which means that you get life, ultimately on account of Jesus, giving up his own life to atone for our sins. And then Jesus changes our hearts in such a way that we really do start to care about the heart of God's standards, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then we begin to live differently in alignment with those standards. It's really important to keep all of this in mind as we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount and consider what it looks like for men and women of integrity to live that way in keeping with God's standards. It is so important as we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount to keep this in mind as we look like what it as we look at what it means for us to be men and women of integrity who keep our word. As important as it is to fully understand like the, the moral stipulations that Jesus is unpacking, it is just as important to understand the why behind them and how it is that we become these kinds of people. In fact, let's deal with exactly these two questions this morning as we consider Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Two questions this morning. Why is integrity such a big deal in the Sermon on the Mount? Why does Jesus take time to focus on this? And then number two, how do we become people of integrity? Which, as we will discuss later, would be just a lovely resolution for 2023. So let's start with that first question. Why is integrity such a big deal? Jesus, seated on a mountain, tells his disciples, as well as larger crowds, gathered within earshot of Jesus, in verse 33, he tells them, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord but you have sworn. In keeping with the pattern that we have already seen many times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, phraseology refers to the Torah, it refers to the Mosaic Law. And here Jesus is summarizing several related statements, apparently including Leviticus 19.12, which says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord. I am your God. Deuteronomy 23.23, which says, You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God, but you have promised with your mouth. And then also, it seems like he's alluding to Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, which says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Jesus is making one statement that seems to be a summary of all of those statements. All of you are very sophisticated 
intellectuals have a very high opinion of your intelligence, so please know that and be encouraged as we head into 2023 here. So you can see the big idea here. God's people should be men and women of integrity who do what they say they're going to do, which was an especially important standard in Israel's heavily oral society where spoken words were literally the engine that made everything go. The marketplace, civic affairs, family relationships. You can see how if people started not doing what they said they were going to do, society would crumble. In keeping their word, as the law spells out, the people of God would do two things. They would promote just relationships with their neighbors. Basically, they would love their neighbors well, and they would honor God's name. They would glorify God's name in keeping their word. And then conversely, when the people of God do not keep their word, they inevitably harm their neighbors, they commit injustices against their neighbors, and they profane God's name, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, by misrepresenting his character and making him out to be a liar. So if you're following God and you don't do what you say you're going to do, it starts to reflect in people's minds upon the God you follow. Maybe this isn't a God who keeps his word. Notice that all of our actions, they either promote the well-being of our neighbors, or they detract from it, and those same actions either honor God's name or profane it. Here in our contemporary West, we love to celebrate this, this kind of individualistic moral framework in which we're free, basically, to do whatever we want to do as long as it doesn't affect somebody negatively. But understand that, biblically speaking, that's really not a thing. Our actions have far more significance, communal ramifications than we like to believe, either for good or for ill. And our actions are always, as a people of God, a witness to that same community of people that we're a part of concerning the character of the God we follow. Good news, bad news. This is so straightforward that you wouldn't think that Jesus would have to spend time helping us get to the heart of the matter. And yet he does exactly that in verses 34 through 37. All right, disciples, you've heard all of this. You're familiar with these standards. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When we hear the word oath in our context, the thing that might come to mind first is probably like a presidential oath of office. And accordingly, there are sectarian Christian groups. I'm trying to speak of this as charitably as possible. There are sectarian Christian groups who restrict their members from running for public office or from signing a mortgage because Jesus said, no oaths. But context is so important 
if we're intending to rightly understand and apply Scripture, and gaining such context involves, among other things, the art of reading what comes before and after the passage you are currently reading. And wouldn't you know it, when we keep reading through the book of Matthew, we encounter this very enlightening set of circumstances in Matthew chapter 23, in which Jesus is basically castigating some religious leaders for various kinds of hypocrisy. Here's Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides, referring to these leaders. Woe to you who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Super convicting, right? I mean, some of us surely walked in this morning far too dismissive about temple swearing, you know, so now we're, we're rightly reproved for the glory of God. But here's the headline. Here's the true headline. Over time, some religious leaders determined that they needed an additional tool in their toolbox to carry out their duties. And that tool was essentially moral license to not do what they said they were going to do if in their sage estimation, new information or new circumstances called for. Or to put this a little bit more honestly, they wanted to find a way to trust their own judgment when necessary and even prioritize personal convenience rather than fully entrusting themselves to the Lord and doing things the way that God says to do them and committing to their word. So these religious leaders looked at these laws that I quoted from earlier, and they determined, you know what, when you really look at these, these laws, the letter of these laws says that you need to do the things that you specifically vow unto the Lord, as in kind of like when you literally invoke his name. But what about the vows not vowed unto the Lord? Doesn't say anything about those, right, when you really look at it. So these religious leaders basically developed what we might call a, a vow ecosystem in which if you made vows unto certain things, like maybe the gold of the temple, in that case you were making a vow unto the Lord, and you had to follow through with that one. But if you made a vow, you know, say just to the temple, well, that wasn't really a vow unto the Lord, so there's a lot more flexibility there if necessary. Vowing according to the temple, therefore, became a convenient way of, of sounding righteous and sounding well-intentioned, while simultaneously and deceitfully, I would say, giving yourself some wiggle room. 
if this feels ridiculous and a bit confusing, that's because it was. I, this is like schoolyard stuff, at least the kind of stuff that I grew up with in California where we developed these really elaborate and confusing verbal formulas concerning dodgeball team commitments. For example, if, if Michael approached me before recess and said, I would like you to be on my dodgeball team, I would you know, appreciate that invitation. I'd say, yes, I would love to be on your dodgeball team. But if upon arrival to the dodgeball court, I saw that David was playing that day, who was, let me tell you, a better player than Michael, I would then become a member of David's team. And of course, Michael would get annoyed, and he would come to me and say, didn't you say that you would be on my team? But I said, yes, but I didn't say, sure, no dropsies, right? <laughs> and then, after that, Ben would show up, and I would slide on over to Ben's team, and then David would come to me, and didn't you, you know, didn't you commit to be on my team, and then I would say, okay, I said, sure, no dropsies, but I didn't say, sure, no dropsies, infinity. You know about that. And then I would slide over the Ben's team, and at that point, I was totally committed, because once you say, you know, sure, no dropsies, infinity, you're fully committed. It, you've, you've, say, you've said a vow unto the Lord, so even if Alex shows up, you can't be on Alex's team anymore. This is the kind of thing that was happening with some of these leaders, elaborate verbal formulas that gave you some wiggle room. And Jesus, he saw right through all of this, and of course he, he understood that any commitments that are made by God's people are always unto the Lord, regardless of the verbal formula. If you're following God, you can't make a commitment that isn't unto the Lord at the end of the day. The people of God offer their entire lives unto the Lord as worship, including their verbal commitments. Which is why Jesus tells his disciples back in Matthew chapter 5, and here I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Since as my followers, all of your commitments are unto the Lord, and therefore should be backed by action, let's drop the formulas, can we? Can we just drop the entire ecosystem? Listen, I reign over heaven and earth and Jerusalem. See verses 34 through 36. They're my throne. They're my footstool. They're my great city. And I reign over you too. So it's not like you can make vows according to any of these things and not make them unto me. In fact, these kinds of vows are nothing but, but righteous-sounding ways to avoid accountability, and they undermine your integrity. Instead, Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil, which is a tricky Greek construction there that probably is best translated evil one. Anything more than this is basically satanic. Instead, let your yes be so trustworthy that nothing else is needed to back it. And let your yes be so other-oriented that you are disinterested in finding ways to verbally hedge your bets and serve yourself. City Church, I want us to be really encouraged, and I mean this very sincerely. I see a lot of integrity in our spiritual community. 
which is, isn't that such a grace from God and not something to take for granted? But can we go ahead as we begin 2023 and investigate ourselves a little bit anyway? Can we go ahead and ask people who love us for really honest feedback? Are we the kinds of people that keep our word that do what we say we're going to do. We are living in a society that would seem to be increasingly allergic to both making commitments and keeping commitments. The millennials and Gen Z get all the bashing in the articles these days, but folks, it is everywhere. Nobody is immune. So the question is, have we uncritically assimilated some of these kinds of allergies to our social lives? Have we assimilated them into our vocational lives? Have we assimilated them into our, our family lives? Here's a, a fairly benign but important example. Do we keep our social plans with friends and family? Do we keep the commitments that we make to help them, serve them? Or... Do we regularly abandon such plans after, I don't know, tiring days at work or maybe when better opportunities suddenly present themselves? If you have a moment this week, I would encourage you to read an article from Sarah Barrett called Stop Before You Cancel Those Plans. And at one point in the piece, she writes, keeping our commitments requires a depth of maturity and selflessness often lacking in our generation. Immaturity merely says, I'll be there. Maturity actually shows up. Selfishness merely makes promises. Selflessness keeps them, even when it's hard. And I would say, especially when it's hard. Are we the kind of people who merely say we'll be there? Or do we actually show up? a posture of selflessness that isn't tossed around by how hard or how inconvenient our commitments might be, a faithful posture that over time becomes a really powerful witness to others concerning the faithfulness of the God we follow. Can we be done texting things? I don't know, like, oh yeah, that could be good. I'll see if I can make it while waiting to hear about other possible social opportunities to make sure we don't miss out on something. I mean, church, that's basically temple swearing in 2023. Instead, how about we do rather basic things like resolutely telling people, yeah, I'll be there, and then be there and show up. But before we move on, I actually want to level up a little bit because integrity, it also has to do not just with our dinner plans. It also has to do with our, our broader worldview commitments as Jesus followers, including our moral commitments. Everybody in this room wrestles with fear, which is grounded 
in varying degrees of mistrust concerning God's wisdom and goodness and power. And that fear catalyzes excessive self-concern and a tendency to take matters into our own hands rather than trusting God when things get wild out there. And then instead of sticking with our broader commitments, including our moral commitments, as Jesus' disciples, we end up getting kind of blown around by the winds of our external circumstances and whichever cultural narratives are winning today. A couple of examples here. Maybe we're tempted to abandon our sexual ethics to avoid negative social stigmas, basically trying to save Christianity from social marginalization rather than trusting the Lord. Maybe we're tempted to abandon our commitments to compassion and kindness for the sake of winning cultural battles with blunt force, either politically or in the worst cases violently, because the ends justify the means. But here's an encouraging and I would say possibly surprising word. People are intrigued, City Church, by those who stand for something. People are intrigued by folks who plant their flag somewhere and stick with it, even when the going gets tough, especially when it's costly. There's, there's something about it that turns heads, even if the people doing the, he the head turning are kind of sheepish about it and don't tell you about it. Abandoning or, or changing broad moral commitments it might seem culturally relevant or whatever, but it's not all that impressive and it's not very intriguing. People are intrigued when they see people stand for something and hold to those commitments. So how do we become these kinds of people of integrity, right? I mean, that's, that's the second question. You might say, where does this transformation come from, and this might seem compelling, how do we become these kinds of people? That's what we have to discuss now, and we'll do it briefly as we close. How do we become people of integrity? Answer. It has to do with believing that the God we follow is a God who keeps His word, is a God who keeps his promises. Based on what we were just talking about, you can probably see this connection in order to deal with the, the fear that causes wishy-washiness and integrity failures. If you want to deal with that fear, we need to shore up our confidence in the wisdom and in the goodness of the God we follow, especially his faithfulness in keeping his promises. I mean, it if we really believe promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you see this a few times in the Old Testament and then in Hebrews chapter 13, or if we really believe that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 4, or if you really believe that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans chapter 8. 
if we really believe those promises, both the content and the trustworthiness of the God who makes them, then we can keep our word to friends and family, even when we're tired, even when we're worried about missing out on something better, believing that God will sustain us and be enough for us, regardless of what unfolds. Then we can commit to upholding God's standards, regardless of their social reception, believing that we will be truly blessed and live well in this world, even if we endure difficulties or even persecution. Then we can grieve and mourn and even wail when we experience difficulties and hardships. But without complaining and without murmuring, because we know that the Lord is our portion and he holds our lot. I mean, imagine, and I want you to think about this beyond now, imagine how much our lives might change this year if we actually believe that God keeps these kinds of promises. Really. I mean, that'll answer that how you will, but here's a few things. I mean, for one thing, we'd think about ourselves less. When you entrust yourself to the Lord, you're, you're less self-concerned, and what happens is that frees you up to be more concerned about other people and prioritize them and their needs. I mean, practically speaking, we'd probably sleep better knowing that God never sleeps. He's always awake. And he's always in charge. I mean, we'd be far more joyful speaking of enjoying God. Now that we see this connection concerning our transformation as people of integrity, I mean, do we just believe harder? Do you just Walk out of those doors after the service, you know, and clench your fist and just like, mm, I'm going to, mm, in 2023, I'm really, I'm really going to believe it. No. I mean, you can try it, but you probably won't get very far. Instead, we look at Jesus, which is pretty much the definition of faith, as it's held out for us in Scripture. We look at Jesus, we redirect our gazes in his direction. The Jesus who is, by the way, the promise of promises. The Jesus who is the one in whom, we saw this in our Second Corinthians series a few months ago, the one in whom, quote, all the promises of God find their yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. The one who fulfills everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets, in the Psalms, Luke chapter 24, 44. And get this. I'm not making this up, and I'm just reading on here in Luke chapter 24. Jesus was so committed to fulfilling the promises of God that he suffered on the cross, and on the third day rose from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. When you gaze upon 
that Jesus and begin to understand the character of his life in his ministry. And in repentance, trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, then, and really only then, do you have the assurance and the confidence that you need to keep your commitments, to keep your promises. Because everything you need is eternally secure. Because the very kingdom of God belongs to you. Some of you have never repented for the sake of entrusting yourselves to Jesus. And you know, man, I hope today is the day when you surrender yourself to him and experience true life. Not just for pragmatism, not just so you can be a more committed person, but that you can experience life and have it abundantly. Others of you have given yourselves unto Christ. You've trusted in him. But you need to grapple afresh this morning in this year with Jesus to remind ourselves exactly what it is that we have with him. To remind ourselves of all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. To become the kind of people who do what we say we're going to do. Imagine a world in which people who disagreed with you 1,010% concerning your theological convictions nonetheless still believe that because this person is a follower of Jesus, I can count on them doing what they say they're going to do. Imagine the transformative impact that could have in our world. Imagine the kind of witness that could have concerning the character of Jesus. If people said, you know what, I don't agree with that person, but what I do know is that followers of Jesus are people who do what they say they're going to do, regardless of their costs. And when they plant their flag somewhere, they stay there, even when it gets rough. Amen.